Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Chatterjee. And for this week's episode, we've got a very special guest. Kurt Morgan is an energy leader who has been the head of 10 different companies. He currently serves as the Chief Executive Officer and Director at Vista Corporation and has had a number of positions throughout the industry. A real pioneer who has had a front row seat to the energy transition. Kurt, thank you for joining us on the Plugged In Podcast. Thanks for having me, Neil. It's good, always good to talk to you. Every time we get together, I think we have a very good conversation. Well, I appreciate it and appreciate you joining the podcast. Um, so we'll just jump right into uh, to the news this week uh, that the corporation uh, announced that you'll be uh, uh, stepping down as CEO in August, but you're going to stay through the transition and and remain in the industry. And as I reflect on your tenure, when you think you came to Vistra in the fall of 2016, you brought the company out of bankruptcy. You took the company from a Texas-only 70% coal fleet to a national fleet that's primarily gas and is moving as quickly as possible to be a leader in, in battery and solar. Uh, can you just reflect a little bit uh, on your time at Vistra and, and what you've seen in terms of the energy transition? Well, yeah. So look, I, when I came in, I, uh, you know, I really thought that, um, you know, that coal was going to be under pressure, not, not just because of environmental issues and in particular greenhouse gas. It was also just the cost of coal the um, the technology, uh, the aging of the of the coal plants that have been many have been built 50, 60 years ago. Uh, natural gas prices uh, at that time were, you know, in the two two to three dollar range, um, but you know somewhere in the two fifty to two seventy five. And so, you know, I knew we were going to be somewhat under pressure. And at that point in time, we had a, a pretty severely overbuilt market in ERCOT. Um, and and so we had to make some hard choices um, about you know what we did with our fleet, and of course we shut down I don't know forty two hundred megawatts of coal um, in Texas alone, but we also needed to pivot you know to um, you know a a lower greenhouse gas emission uh, fuel source, and we and we knew gas was uh, very important at that time. You know there were there were hardly any utterances of of ESG. Um, although there certainly was a discussion around climate change and, you know, that, that there was a steady drumbeat coming and it, and, and, and it has only accelerated since I've taken over. And, and since COVID, you know, the, the world has even gotten more accelerated. Um, if you think that you can do a, a five-year plan in this business anymore, it just, just isn't going to happen. Uh, strategies are changing every one to two years. Um, now, the good news is, is that while that's challenging, that also means there's tremendous opportunity. And so I've always thought of it as for with every, you know, disruptive technology and, and every, uh, you know, disruptive market situation on the other side of it is an opportunity. And we've tried to bring our company along in that. You know, we bought Dynagy because Dynagy really uh, had the best natural gas fleet from New England down through Texas. Um, and so we, you know, we accelerated into the natural gas through that acquisition. 
And now we're accelerating into, um, you know, the green investments with uh, batteries and also with solar. And we're using a lot of the sites that already existed um, that have access to transmission. But the world's moving fast, um, you know, and, uh, you know, I since I came here in October of 2016, it's only it's only moved even faster. And, and so that just means you got to be nimble on your feet. Well, here on the Plugged In Podcast, we focus a lot on, on energy policy and, and markets and the substantive component. But there's also a human component to a lot of this. I mean, you've seen so much, you know, uh, as you mentioned, the transition from coal to gas and gas now to renewables. I have to imagine that means huge HR challenges and really tough decisions uh, as a large employer. Can you kind of talk through how you manage some of those tough calls responsibly? I've got to imagine that's a really important part of the work that you've done. Well, it is. And and you know what? I don't know that anybody's ever asked me that question. And it's something that I spend a lot of time on and that I care a lot about. Uh, But you won't get too many investors uh, or regulators um, even elected officials, um, they do at times, obviously, because they're their constituency, but they don't normally, you know, engage in that conversation with you. But I'll just tell you this, that, you know, just from the, the, the retirements of coal plants, the displacement of, uh, uh of people, um, is, is significant. Uh, it takes four or five to six times as many people to run a coal plant as it does a similar size gas plant. And then, of course, if you get into renewables, uh, you can have a significant, you know, wind farm or solar uh, uh, field, and you might have one or two workers, whereas a similar size situation could have anywhere, you know, from uh, 20 to to 50 people, uh, if that's a gas plant or coal plant, respectively. So there is a there's certainly with technological change there is a human capital element to it. I think the things that we've tried to do uh, are um, a couple of fold, which is number one, how you treat people uh, when they walk out the door. Uh, you have to make the hard decisions as a CEO, and in particular, of a public company. And so, if something is losing money, you have to make that decision. But the thing that that is uh, optional in all this is how do you treat the people on the way out the door? We've always had very good severance packages for our people. We've also tried to find them jobs because we have it within our own company because we have uh, opportunities at other power plants. We've also did retraining so that people can work on our uh, you know our move into renewables um, and and batteries. And so I think you know we've tried to do this in a way where we can can also try to retrain people and we put money toward outplacement. So if they do have to leave the company and we can't find a place for them inside, that they can find a job somewhere else and with that money also uh, help them build a new skill set. We also have, and we did this with, without any pressure from anybody, no one told us to do it, no policymakers entered into this. We're providing three-year glide path on uh, property taxes because communities are significantly affected. Most of the the, the uh, communities where we have coal plants, uh, we're either number one or number two in terms of property taxes. So that and that get, that goes squarely to schools, that goes to hospitals, and that goes to police and fire departments. And so what we've done is worked with communities to try to give them time to wean themselves. And then the last thing we've done 
is when we do have to retire, uh, we, we have to retire a plant. We've also tried to to put batteries and solar on those sites so that the property tax base does not go down and in fact can actually increase. So, you know, managing the human capital side of this is very important. Uh, and it's getting even more important because, as you know, uh, uh, people are tight right now. The workforce is hard to get and you have to have a proposition for um, for people where they feel like they can learn, they can grow, uh, and and also that they can be proud of their company. So a lot of the things we do, um, we do with the eye toward making sure we can retain our current workforce and that we can also add, uh, and, you know, and hire to our, our current workforce. So going into new technologies is exciting for people. Being in a retail business is exciting for people. Our efforts around diversity, equity, inclusion are incredibly important for the new workforce coming in. All of those things are to try to be able to hire the best and the brightest because you can't win in this business or any business for that matter without having, you know, the most talented workforce. Uh, and we work very hard to try to do that. You know, that's so important. And, and I love that you've had a focus in this area. You know, I've spoken publicly, you know, before that I'm from Kentucky. You know, I've seen firsthand what happens when, you know, uh, coal plants retire and the mines that feed them shut down. And it really does have a devastating impact on communities. And, and you are right. It's tied to uh, the, the tax revenues and, and the schools and the communities that they're in. And uh, I, I think it's important to have that focus. And so I, I know from my research, you know, you've worked hard in both Texas and Illinois to, to work with the unions uh, as you mentioned, to help employees develop the skills and transition to the clean energy economy. You know, I love the fact that you're working with these communities to try and ensure that the tax base isn't completely eroded. I think some of these things get lost in the dialogue around the energy transition and decarbonization. And, and we can't forget that, yes, the energy transition and decarbonization is important, but there's a human face to it and we can't lose sight of it. You mentioned the work that uh, you did on diversity, equity, and inclusion. This was something that was important to me and that I focused on during my time at FERC. Um, you know, we are in a period of transition, not just in terms of our energy sources, but in the energy workforce as well. Can you expand a little bit on, on your efforts in that area? Yeah. So look, I, you know, I, I will tell you that for me and for the company, I believe um, the, you know, the, the single event that really I, uh, propelled us uh, into where we are with uh, DEI um, was, and I think for a lot of people, this was the case, was the you know, murder of, of George uh, Floyd right out in broad daylight uh, by the people that are entrusted to protect us. Uh, and that shook me to my core. I, I slept good at night thinking that you know, we, we had a African-American black president, that we had made great strides, that we were heading toward the dream uh, that Martin Luther King had. And then I realized you know, Kurt, basically, you know, that's just not the case. And we did about 40 listening sessions with our workforce, and it opened my eyes even further. Comments from uh, Black employees that work at power plants that have to drive through, through predominantly white communities, how they would go five to 10 miles out of their way to go around the community because they've been pulled over because they drove a nice truck and had a nice job. Um, you know, things like that, that, you know, I thought, you know, were behind us. 
were not behind us. A family, a black family having to have a conversation with their eight-year-old and seven-year-old children about being careful around the police, that you have to watch yourself. I've never had a conversation like that with my three daughters. Never felt like I had to. Those things just really shook me, Neil. And 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 I said, look, I and I heard from our people that they didn't feel like uh, they uh, that they had that the diverse candidates didn't feel like they had a, an equal chance. That there were there were certain biases in my own organization, and and I I basically said we can't have that. And so we've done we're doing training for all employees on diversity, equity, inclusion. You know, uh, unbi- unbiased consciousness that we have around uh, or uh, uh, you know around you know, just prejudices that we have that are, you know, un- that are unconscious to us and we don't really know about it. And so we're having a, a trading. We've changed the way that we look at jobs, job requirements. Uh, it's not just about what school you went to. It's also about what your, your, your skill sets are. Um, we've also uh, taken names off of uh, resumes when we initially screen because we've learned that there are biases uh, in, in that as well. Um, and so there's a number of things that actions and we, and by the way, we've also put this on our annual incentive plan. It has a 10% weighting. So we have an index, a DEI index, one of the few companies that have already done this, but we, you know, our, our, uh, entire employee base, their bonuses, part of it is on how well we execute around diversity, equity, and inclusion. We've expanded our employee resource groups uh, to a number of re- resource groups that are related to uh, diversity. We've gone from, I think we had four or five, and now we're at 13. And so the company is living uh, this idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I've seen a change. I've seen a change in all of our, uh, all of our team members, um, and it's been a positive change. And, you know, the morale of the company uh, has, has increased even during COVID. Um, you know, during the COVID process, we had live streams once a week for the first six months and now once a month that I do. And I get a lot of feedback from that from our employee base. And the things we're doing around diversity, equity, inclusion for 90 percent of our workforce has changed their view of each other and how and how close knit our company is. There's always going to be a handful that just can't get over the hump. And for those, if they can't come together, then they can go do something else. But our company has, has fundamentally changed in terms of, you know, creating an environment where everybody has an equal chance of prospering. And I'm proud of that. I'm, I'm, I'm very, probably as proud of that as anything that I've done in my career. Well, you should be. And I really want to thank you for your, your leadership in this regard. Um, it's not easy. Uh, I similarly dealt with this in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. Uh, I was pretty open about the importance of diversity and inclusion training uh, during my time at FERC. Uh, And ultimately, uh, resistance to the prohibition uh, on diversity inclusion training played a role in in my being demoted as FERC chairman. Uh, And sticking in that regard and, and pivoting to substance a little bit, the other issue that got me demoted, uh, in addition to my resisting the prohibition on diversity and inclusion treatment, um, was my bracing of a carbon price. Now, you and I lived this during my tenure at FERC. We had this complicated situation in the markets the commission oversaw 
where state policies were, were negatively impacting, in my view, the efficient functioning and accurate price signals that are necessary for, for efficient market function. We made the difficult decision uh, to go with the, the minimum offer price rule or buyer side mitigation in, in other RTOs, uh, Casper in New England. These were tough calls. And what I came to realize at the end of it, in my view, was I'm a big believer in markets. I wanted these markets to succeed and move forward, but they weren't functioning and balancing these state policies well. But our MOPR actions created such a visceral pushback that folks were threatening to pull out of the markets, which I didn't think was a tenable uh, solution either. And so I really zeroed in on transparent carbon pricing as the most effective mechanism to balance state policies with efficient market functioning and achieve decarbonization goals in a transparent way. You and I have had a lot of conversations about this. Can you just kind of let our listeners know how you have navigated these complex market dynamics these past few years? Yeah, well, the first thing I want to tell you is that I'm proud of how you handled yourself and your situation around you know, the whole diversity, equity, and inclusion issue at FERC. Um, and you were right on that. Uh, and also uh, the other issue that, that got you demoted as well, which was your embracing of uh, a transparent carbon price. Uh, you know, most people would not do that in your job and they'd play politics. Um, but, you know, you were a man of, of principle and I watched you go through it. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry you had to do that, but in the end, you did the right things. And, you know, I like to think I'm the same type of person, um, and, and this is why you and I get along. In terms of, you know, the, the carbon pricing issue, you know that we're a founding member of the Climate Leadership Council. You have um, a relationship with the Climate Leadership Council as well. And, you know, when I look at something in a problem where I see uh, the kind of diverse group of people coming together uh, around a common issue. Uh, when I see Democrats and Republicans alike uh, working together, when I see over 200 of the most prominent economists in the world uh, behind a particular methodology, you know, with George Schultz and James Baker the uh, Third, Janet Yellen, you know, and, and the list goes on and on. Ben Bernanke, a number of people. These are thoughtful people who are trying to help us decarbonize the economy and to change and to take this this enormous and unprecedented economic engine in the United States and not destroy it, but actually uh, to transition it to a carbon-free economy uh, at the same time. And that is very difficult to do. And it's been very clear that subsidies, although I understand the propensity for policymakers to like to use them because they feel like it's their direct contribution, at the end of the day, they don't result in the kind of decarbonization that you need in the economy. A transparent carbon price um, with a potential to dividend some of the revenues from that carbon fee back to those who need it the most and with a, a, a border carbon adjustment to make sure that the playing field is fair to the U.S. companies to me is the, the most efficient way and the modeling that almost any major uh, consulting firm that has done in this 
and that includes McKinsey and BCG and others who we've worked with, show that that is the most direct way to, to decarbonize the economy, but to also to make sure that the, it's economy-wide. You, we're not going to get to the numbers that we're looking for if we just solely focused on the electric sector. Uh, transportation is uh, now ha- outpaces the electric sector in terms of the amount of, uh, gr- uh, of, of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And, and there are others that are very significant. So in order to try to do that, we need a nationwide transparent uh, carbon price. The, pro- the problem we have is, is that we have a group of people in Washington, D.C. who care more about politics than they care about getting what's done when it comes to climate change. They talk a good story, but they don't want to make the hard choices. And we've laid out with this, uh, with the Climate Leadership Council, a perfect way to do this and a way to actually use the revenue stream to help people out who need this and to transition this, this economy. If we're really serious about it, this is the best way to do it. It also does exactly what you said. It takes away the need to have things like MOPR. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a way to basically structure the, the, the electric markets where they're fair, they're transparent, and everybody has an even playing field. And they incentivize the reduction of carbon emissions. Even some of the most, uh, even the highest carbon emitting resources will be incentivized to try to find ways to become more efficient to reduce carbon emissions. So that's why I know that I'm behind it. That's why I think you're behind this. And, and, and that's why I'm hoping that we'll get together on this and make this, um, you know, economy wide. If we do, I think we'll make the kind of progress that we're looking for. And I do think, you know, the potential is there. Uh, just just hearing your message and the clarity of it and your background and, and, and the business perspective, I'm hopeful policymakers in the political arena will take notice of that uh, because, I mean, everything you said is spot on and it's smart and it's right. The politics of it are tricky, but at the end of the day, I'm a firm believer that good policy makes good politics over time. And I do think this is... Uh, good policy. So uh, thank you for articulating that. I want to pivot a little bit, you know, here on the Plugged In podcast, we, we get into substance, uh, but we also like to, to keep it fun and engaging and personal. So we're, we're in the midst of the NCAA basketball tournament right now. I know you're from Illinois and, uh, and your father uh, was a high school basketball coach. And I, I've been having fun watching the conversations around, you know, Coach Krzyzewski retiring and his coaching tree and all the the folks that he has produced who have gone on to coach elsewhere. I was thinking about how that applies in our world, in the energy world. And is it correct that when you were at Reliant, you worked with Thad Hill, the CEO of Calpine, Mauricio Gutierrez, the CEO of Energy, and Bob Flexon, the former CEO of Dynagy? Talk about a coaching tree to come out of Reliant. Were you guys all there together? We were actually at NRG together. Um, oh, energy. And, okay. Yeah, but we but we were all together, and we were all friends, and we <laughs> remain friends. Uh, and and you know, Mauricio ran the commercial organization. Thad came over with the Texas Genco acquisition. Bob was the CFO, and I ran. You know, their their eastern, uh, so, you know, which was everything sort of east of the Mississippi, the eastern region. Um, and so, yeah, we were we were all there together. Uh, quite a lineage, no doubt about it. Um, and I, 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 I think it's safe to say that, you know, we've done all we've done. OK, each one <laughs> of us uh, have had our share of successes. 
was very, very impressive. Uh, now, again, I said I was going to keep this conversation light, uh, and we've talked about carbon pricing and diversity and inclusion training, but now I want, I want to get into something really controversial, and that is how does a guy who grew up in Illinois become a huge Alabama football fan? Please explain yourself. Yeah, well, that uh, that's an interesting story. So I moved down to uh, uh, to Atlanta, Georgia, and I and I, was, I built a home. And uh, the builder was friends with a gentleman named Bill Battle. Um, Bill Battle played for Bear Bryant um, and and went on to coach the the Tennessee Volunteers. Um, Bill, I think, is either the number one or the second winningest coach in Tennessee Volunteer history. Um, but more importantly, Bill Battle is one of the highest integrity and one of the, the, the best men that I've ever known. Well, Bill, because he had an affiliation with Alabama and subsequently became the athletic director there, um, would give us uh, some tickets. And uh, my kids uh, would go to the games and then they fell in love with the, the university and so all three of my girls went through uh, Alabama. So I figured, uh, Neil, that if my kids are going to go there and I'm going to put my money into the tuition and so forth, I, I, because my dad's background, what you just mentioned, I, I love being around uh, you know, team sports. And so I've been fortunate enough in life to have a little bit of discretionary income, and I decided I was going to invest it uh, in Alabama uh, athletics. And for me, there's nothing sort of more pure than college sports, although that's being clouded now with nil, which is a separate, a separate subject. But I just I love it. Um, of course, Saban is is a high integrity guy. I knew Bill Battle. Um, Alabama's got a rich history, and there's nothing better to me than a Saturday afternoon in the fall watching SEC football. Uh, you know, having a, 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 a tailgate with my girls, uh, all the family around. It's just good family fun. Um, and so it was pretty easy to fall in love with that. And, and, and I will be uh, involved in Alabama uh, athletics um, until the day I'm no longer a part of this earth. It's just become a part of who I am. So you know, that's really the, the, the reason it really was the foundation was around wanting to be with family and wanting to contribute to, um, you know, a high integrity athletic program. Um, and because I knew uh, uh, the eventual athletic director at Alabama and I thought so highly of him, it became a pretty easy decision. So my understanding is that you're, you're, you're not just a fan, it's pretty sophisticated and that you write up detailed pregame evaluations. So looking back now at the national championship game, was it injuries did Georgia just have an incredible night? How, you know, Alabama looked so dominant in the SEC championship game. What changed during that interval that you think uh, enabled Georgia to get over the top? Well, look, I'm not a big excuse guy. Um, you know, so uh, I think uh, Georgia made adjustments. Uh, their defense um, played uh, extremely well. Um, you know, I think sometimes, you know, Alabama had everything to lose. Um, you know, during that SEC championship game, I mean, they had in, in order to really be in the position to be in the national championship, they needed to win the SEC championship game. 
which they did. Um, you know, I think that uh, I give Georgia a lot of credit and Kirby Smart. They had a good game plan um, and they were very talented. But I think unquestionably when your two star um, over be each one over a thousand yard receivers and, and who have, you know, just impeccable timing with with your quarterback are no longer playing in the game. That changed that game. If you watched it in the first half, Alabama actually led most of it. And, you know, they were playing pretty well until they lost. But, you know, Neil, when you get to that point and you if people go down, you know, one of the mottos in Alabama is next man up, you know, and they've got, you know, four and five stars all the way from top to bottom. You know, I felt like a couple of the, the young receivers didn't do – didn't have the attention to detail – that they needed to to put themselves in a position during the national championship game to make a difference. Uh, final question: uh, You've mentioned uh, your your three daughters a couple of times. We're, we're very well researched here on the Plugged In podcast. Uh, my understanding is you're a relatively new granddad. Uh, I wanted to give you a moment to do a little bragging, real quick. Uh, tell us about your granddaughter. Yeah, well, her name is. Uh, uh, Fiona, I, we call her Fifi. Uh, she calls herself that, which is interesting uh, when she sees her own picture. Uh, you know, two two plus years old. Um, you know, Neil. I people told me that when you have a grandchild, it's going to be like unlike anything you you, you know you've ever had. Um, that it's 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 you know you're just not going to be able to believe how different it is. And I and I I'd listen to them say, yeah, yeah. There's no doubt about it. I mean, it is, uh, it's an incredible joy. You have a, just a completely different relationship. Um, you know, I think with children, you, you have, when you have your children, you're constantly teaching and you're constantly worried and, you know, wanting to make sure that, you know, they're doing the right things. And as a grandparent, I think you can relax a little bit more and enjoy uh, the situation. But whatever the reasoning is, uh, it's a great institution to be a grandparent. Um, and uh, I enjoy every uh, minute I can have around her. And, um, you know, I'm looking forward to, you know, when I do leave uh, this job, you know, spend a little more time with her. Well, uh, I'm sure uh, you will both appreciate that opportunity. Uh, in terms of uh, what you might do next, uh, you know, you talked about Alabama. You talked about your commitment to the athletic program. You've had such a long and distinguished career. What you've done in terms of, you know, training workers and, and like you said, teaching your kids. Could teaching be a possibility? Could you see yourself maybe teaching a class at Alabama? Well, yeah. You know, I my dad's an educator um, and my uncle's an educator, um, uh, my grandfather and others. So, you know, look, I um, – I don't know what I'm going to do, but, you know, that certainly is something that interests me, uh, you know, basically uh, sharing my experiences um, throughout my life uh, with young, younger folks coming up. I mean, the bottom line is, you know, the, the, the future of our country is in the hands of our young people. And, you know, I would love to have an opportunity uh, to, to share you know, like I said, my experiences and knowledge with them. So I may do something like that. I don't know. I also, you know, feel like I can do a lot. You know, I could be on boards, uh, certainly can be a mentor of CEOs. 
Uh, I also believe that I can, you know, help uh, in the private equity setting, which I'm very familiar with, uh, in working with companies um, and whether it's uh, helping uh, a young uh, and new CEO, uh, you know, with a, with a portfolio company or stepping in to help turn a company around for a short period till we can get a new CEO, whatever it might be, you know, I, I, Neil, I would say I'm as good at doing this now, what I do, as I've ever been. And I think that's probably true of anybody that gets to my age, that you're very good at it. But you also have to take in mind in, in mind that, you know, your own sort of longevity. Um, and, you know, we're all mortal at the end of the day, we can't live forever. And so it's a balancing act for me of trying to enjoy life, enjoy my granddaughter, as you were mentioning to me, time with my family, but also being relevant because I feel like I have still have a lot, lot to give and I like to be relevant um, and I'm continually learning. So I'm going to find that balance. I just don't know what it is. Well, Kurt Morgan, thank you for your contributions to the country and to the energy industry to date. You have done so much already and I am confident you will continue to contribute and be relevant. Thank you for joining the Plugged In Podcast really appreciate it and and, uh, this was a delightful conversation and I look forward to continuing to discuss both energy policy and college football with you in the future. Thank you Neil thank you it's great talking to you as always Thanks again for listening to season two of the Plugged In podcast new episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon eastern time You can also keep up with all things energy by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and subscribing to the Daily on Energy newsletter written by yours truly, Jeremy Beeman.